Before I narrate this week's episode, I want to highlight an exciting new podcast written by one of the friends of Conan, Nebula Award-nominated author Jake Kerr. Not only did he write the introduction for the Broadsword Books edition of Conan's stories featured in this podcast, he has a new fantasy series out, written in the spirit of pulp fiction novels of the 30s. Rather than release an audiobook, Broadsword Books is pairing with In Shambles Productions to create a full-cast audiobook podcast released twice a week. If you love unforgettable characters, cliffhanger chapters and a world with secret societies, complex political machinations and, of course, sword and sorcery, then check out the Thieves Guild podcast. You can find a link in the description. Conan and Friends a fantasy pulp fiction audiobook podcast. Voice characterizations and sound design by Audiodrama.ai. Conan by Robert E. Howard. Episode 11. Gods of the North. The clangor of the swords had died away. The shouting of the slaughter was hushed. Silence lay on the red-stained snow, the bleak, pale sun that glittered so blindingly from the ice fields and the snow-covered plains struck sheens of silver from rent corslet and broken blade, where the dead lay as they had fallen. The nerveless hand yet gripped the broken hilt, helmeted heads back-drawn in the death throes, tilted red beards and golden beards, grimly upward, as if in last invocation to Emir the Frost Giant, god of a warrior race. Across the red drifts and mail-clad forms, two figures glared at each other. In that utter desolation only they moved. The frosty sky was over them, the white illimitable plain around them, the dead men at their feet. Slowly through the corpses they came, as ghosts might come to a tryst through the shambles of a dead world. In the brooding silence they stood face to face. Both were tall men, built like tigers. Their shields were gone, their corslets battered and dinted. Blood dried on their mail, their swords were stained red, their horned helmets showed the marks of fierce strokes. One was beardless and black-maned. The locks and beard of the other were red as the blood on the sunlit snow. Ma'am, said he, tell me your name, so that my brothers in Vanheim may know who was the last of Wolfhir's band to fall before the sword of Heimbull. Not in Vanheim growled the black-haired warrior, but in Valhalla will you tell your brothers that you met Conan of Cimmeria? Heimdall roared and leapt, and his sword flashed in deathly arc. Conan staggered and his vision was filled with red sparks as the singing blade crashed on his helmet, shivering into bits of blue fire. But as he reeled, he thrust with all the power of his broad shoulders behind the humming blade. The sharp point tore through brass scales and bones and heart, and the red-haired warrior died at Conan's feet. The Cimmerian stood upright, trailing his sword, a sudden sick weariness assailing him. The glare of the sun on the snow cut his eyes like a knife, and the sky seemed shrunken and strangely apart. He turned away from the trampled expanse where yellow-bearded warriors lay locked with red-haired slayers in the embrace of death. A few steps he took, and the glare of the snowfields was suddenly dimmed. A rushing wave of blindness engulfed him, and he sank down into the snow, supporting himself on one mailed arm, seeking to shake the blindness out of his eyes as a lion might shake his mane. 
A silvery laugh cut through his dizziness, and his sight cleared slowly. He looked up. There was a strangeness about all the landscape that he could not place or define, an unfamiliar tinge to earth and sky. But he did not think long of this. Before him, swaying like a sapling in the wind, stood a woman. Her body was like ivory to his dazed gaze, and save for a light veil of gossamer, she was naked as the day. Her slender bare feet were whiter than the snow they spurned. She laughed down at the bewildered warrior. Her laughter was sweeter than the rippling of silvery fountains, and poisonous with cruel mockery. Who are you? asked the Cimmerian. Whence come you? What matter? Her voice was more musical than a silver-stringed harp, but it was edged with cruelty. Call up your men, said he, grasping his sword. Yet though my strength fail me, they shall not take me alive. I see that you are of the Vanir. Have I said so? His gaze went again to her unruly locks, which at first glance he had thought to be red. Now he saw that they were neither red nor yellow, but a glorious compound of both colors. He gazed spellbound. Her hair was like elfin gold. The sun struck it so dazzlingly that he could scarcely bear to look upon it. Her eyes were likewise neither wholly blue nor wholly grey, but of shifting colours and dancing lights and clouds of colours he could not define. Her full red lips smiled, and from her slender feet to the blinding crown of her billowy hair, her ivory body was as perfect as the dream of a god. Conan's pulse hammered in his temples. I cannot tell, said he. Whether you are of Vanaheim and mine enemy, or of Asgard and my friend, far have I wandered, but a woman like you I have never seen. Your locks blind me with their brightness. Never have I seen such hair, not even among the fairest daughters of the Aesir. By Ymir, who are you to swear by Ymir? she mocked. What know you of the gods of ice and snow, you who have come up from the south to adventure among an alien people? By the dark gods of my own race, he cried in anger. Though I am not of the golden-haired Aesir, none has been more forward in swordplay. This day I have seen fourscore men fall, and I alone have survived the field where Wolfers Reavers met the wolves of Bregai. Tell me, woman, have you seen the flash of mail out across the snow plains, or seen armed men moving upon the ice? I have seen the hoarfrost glittering in the sun, she answered. I have heard the wind whispering across the everlasting snows. He shook his head with a sigh. Njord should have come up with us before the battle joined. I fear he and his fighting men have been ambushed. Wolfir and his warriors lie dead. I had thought there was no village within many leagues of this spot, for the war carried us far. But you cannot have come a great distance over these snows, naked as you are. Lead me to your tribe if you are of Asgard, for I am faint with blows and the weariness of strife. My village is further than you can walk, Conan of Cimmeria, she laughed. Spreading her arms wide, she swayed before him, a golden head lolling sensuously, a scintillant eyes half-shadowed beneath their long silken lashes. Am I not beautiful, old man? Like dawn running naked on the snows, he muttered his eyes burning like those of a wolf. Then why do you not rise and follow me? Who is the strong warrior who falls down before me? She chanted in maddening mockery. Lie down and die in the snow with the other fools. Conan of the black hair, you cannot follow where I would lead. With an oath, 
The Sumerian heaved himself up on his feet, his blue eyes blazing, his dark scarred face contorted. Rage shook his soul, but desire for the taunting figure before him hammered at his temples and drove his wild blood fiercely through his veins. Passion fierce as physical agony flooded his whole being, so that earth and sky swam red to his dizzy gaze. In the madness that swept upon him, weariness and faintness were swept away. He spoke no word as he drove at her, fingers spread to grip her soft flesh. With a shriek of laughter she leapt back and ran, laughing at him over her white shoulder. With a low growl Conan followed. He had forgotten the fight, forgotten the mailed warriors who lay in their blood, forgotten Neord and the Reavers who had failed to reach the fight. He had thought only for the slender white shape which seemed to float rather than run before him. Out across the white blinding plain the chase led. The trampled red field fell out of sight behind him, but still Conan kept on with the silent tenacity of his race. His mailed feet broke through the frozen crust. He sank deep in the drifts and forged through them by sheer strength. But the girl danced across the snow, light as a feather floating across a pool. Her naked feet barely left their imprint on the hoarfrost that overlaid the crust. In spite of the fire in his veins, the cold bit through the warrior's mail and fur-lined tunic, but the girl in her gossamer veil ran as lightly, as gaily as if she danced through the palm and rose gardens of Poiton. On and on she led, and Conan followed. Black curses drooled through the Sumerian's parched lips. The great veins in his temples swelled and throbbed and his teeth gnashed. You cannot escape me, he roared. Lead me into a trap and I'll pile the heads of your kinsmen at your feet. Hide from me and I'll tear apart the mountains to find you. I'll follow you to hell. A maddening laughter floated back to him and foam flew from the barbarian's lips. Further and further into the waste she led him. The land changed. The wide plains gave way to low hills, marching upward in broken ranges. Far to the north he caught a glimpse of towering mountains, blue with the distance, or white with the eternal snows. Above these mountains shone the flaring rays of the Borealis. They spread fan-wise into the sky, frosty blades of cold flaming light, changing in color, growing and brightening. Above him... The skies glowed and crackled with strange lights and gleams. The snow shone weirdly, now frosty blue, now icy crimson, now cold silver. Through a shimmering icy realm of enchantment, Conan plunged doggedly onward in a crystalline maze where the only reality was the white body dancing across the glittering snow beyond his reach, ever beyond his reach. He did not wonder at the strangeness of it all not even when two gigantic figures rose up to bar his way. The scales of their mail were white with hoarfrost. Their helmets and their axes were covered with ice. Snow sprinkled their locks. In their beards were spikes of icicles. Their eyes were cold as the lights that streamed above them. Brothers, cried the girl, dancing between them. Look who follows. I brought you a man to slay. Take his heart that we may lay it smoking on our father's board. The giants answered with roars like the grinding of icebergs on a frozen shore and heaved up their shining axes as the maddened Sumerian hurled himself upon them. A frosty blade flashed before his eyes, blinding him with its brightness, and he gave back a terrible stroke that sheared through his foe's thigh. With a groan the victim fell, 
and at the instant Conan was dashed into the snow, his left shoulder numb from the blow of the survivor, from which the Cimmerian's mail had barely saved his life, Conan saw the remaining giant looming high above him like a colossus carved of ice, etched against the cold, glowing sky. The axe fell to sink through the snow and deep into the frozen earth as Conan hurled himself aside and leapt to his feet. The giant roared and wrenched his axe free, but even as he did, Conan's sword sang down. The giant's knees bent and he sank slowly into the snow, which turned crimson with the blood that gushed from his half-severed neck. Conan wheeled to see the girl standing a short distance away, staring at him in wide-eyed horror, all the mockery gone from her face. He cried out fiercely and the blood drops flew from his sword as his hand shook in the intensity of his passion. Call the rest of your brothers, he cried. I'll give their hearts to the wolves. You cannot escape me. With a cry of fright, she turned and ran fleetly. She did not laugh now nor mock him over her white shoulder. She ran as for her life, and though he strained every nerve and the ewe, until his temples were like to burst and the snow swam red to his gaze, she drew away from him, dwindling in the witchfire of the skies, until she was a figure no bigger than a child, then a dancing white flame on the snow, then a dim blur in the distance. But grinding his teeth until the blood started from his gums, he reeled on. Shortly after Marilo left the dungeon where Conan the Cimmerian was confined, Athicus brought the prisoner a platter of food, which included, among other things, a huge joint of beef and a tankard of ale. Conan fell to voraciously, and Athicus made a final round of the cells, to see that all was in order, and that none should witness the pretended prison break. It was while he was so occupied that a squad of guardsmen marched into the prison and placed him under arrest. Marilo had been mistaken when he assumed this arrest denoted discovery of Conan's planned escape. It was another matter. Athicus had become careless in his dealings with the underworld, and one of his past sins had caught up with him. Another jailer took his place, a stolid, dependable creature whom no amount of bribery could have shaken from his duty. He was unimaginative, but he had an exalted idea of the importance of his job. After Athicus had been marched away to be formally arraigned before a magistrate, this jailer made the rounds of the cell as a matter of routine. As he passed that of Conan, his sense of propriety was shocked and outraged to see the prisoner free of his chains and in the act of gnawing the last shreds of meat from a huge beef bone. The jailer was so upset that he made the mistake of entering the cell alone without calling guards from the other parts of the prison. It was his first mistake in the line of duty, and his last. Conan brained him with the beef bone, took his poniard and his keys, and made a leisurely departure. As Marilo had said, only one guard was on duty there at night. The Cimmerian passed himself outside the walls by means of the keys he had taken, and presently emerged into the outer air, as free as if Marilo's plan had been successful. In the shadows of the prison walls, Conan paused to decide his next course of action. It occurred to him that since he had escaped through his own actions, he owed nothing to Marilo. Yet it had been the young nobleman who had removed his chains and had the food sent to him, without either of which his escape would have been impossible. Conan decided that he was indebted to Marilo, and since he was a man who discharged his obligations eventually, he determined to carry out his promise to the young aristocrat. But first, he had some business of his own to attend to. He discarded his ragged tunic and moved off through the night naked but for a loincloth. 
As he went, he fingered the poniard he had captured, a murderous weapon with a broad, double-edged blade nineteen inches long. He slunk along alleys and shadowed plazas until he came to the district which was his destination, the maze. Along its labyrinthian ways, he went with a certainty of familiarity. It was indeed a maze of black alleys and enclosed courts and devious ways, of furtive sounds and stenches. There was no paving on the streets. Mud and filth mingled in an unsavory mess. Sewers were unknown. Refuse was dumped into the alleys to form reeking heaps and puddles. Unless a man walked with care, he was likely to lose his footing and plunge waist deep into nauseous pools. Nor was it uncommon to stumble over a corpse lying with its throat cut or its head knocked in in the mud. Honest folk shunned the maze with good reason. Conan reached his destination without being seen, just as one he wished fervently to meet was leaving it. As the Cimmerian slunk into the courtyard below, the girl who had sold him to the police was taking leave of her new lover in a chamber one flight up. This young thug, her door closed behind him, groped his way down a creaking flight of stairs, intent on his own meditations, which, like those of most of the denizens of the maze, had to do with the unlawful acquirement of property. Partway down the stairs, he halted suddenly, his hair standing up, a vague bulk crouched in the darkness before him, a pair of eyes blazed like the eyes of a hunting beast. A beast-like snarl was the last thing he heard in life as the monster lurched against him and a keen blade ripped through his belly. He gave one gasping cry and slumped down limply on the stairway. The barbarian loomed above him for an instant, goal-like, his eyes burning in the gloom. He knew the sound was heard, but the people in the maze were careful to attend to their own business. A death cry on darkened stairs was nothing unusual. Later, someone would venture to investigate, but only after a reasonable lapse of time. Conan went up the stairs and halted at a door he knew well of old. It was fastened within, but his blade passed between the door and the jam and lifted the bar. He stepped inside, closing the door after him, and faced the girl who had betrayed him to the police. The wench was sitting cross-legged in her shift on her unkempt bed. She turned white and stared at him, as if at a ghost. She had heard the cry from the stairs and she saw the red stain on the poniard in his hand. But she was too filled with terror on her own account to waste any time lamenting the evident fate of her lover. She began to beg for her life, almost incoherent with terror. Conan did not reply. He merely stood and glared at her with his burning eyes, testing the edge of his poniard with a callous thumb. At last he crossed the chamber, while she cowered back against the wall, sobbing frantic pleas for mercy. Grasping her yellow locks with no gentle hand, he dragged her off the bed. Thrusting his blade in the sheath, he tucked his squirming captive under his left arm and strode to the window. As in most houses of that type, a ledge encircled each story caused by the continuance of the window ledges. Conan kicked the window open and stepped out on that narrow band. If any had been near or awake, they would have witnessed the bizarre sight of a man moving carefully along the ledge, carrying a kicking, half-naked wench under his arm. They would have been no more puzzled than the girl. Reaching the spot he sought, Conan halted, gripping the wall with his free hand. Inside the building rose a sudden clamor, showing that the body had at last been discovered. His captive whimpered and twisted, renewing her importunities. Conan glanced down into the muck and slime of the alleys below. He listened briefly to the clamor inside and the pleas of the wench. Then he dropped her with great accuracy into a cesspool. 
He enjoyed her kickings and flounderings and the concentrated venom of her profanity for a few seconds and even allowed himself a low rumble of laughter. Then he lifted his head, listened to the growing tumult within the building and decided it was time for him to kill Nabonidus. As an hallucination he followed into the wastes, he is from the south. What does he know of Atali? You speak truth, perhaps, muttered Conan. It was all strange and weird, like Kram. He broke off, glaring at the object that still dangled from his clenched left fist. The others gaped silently at the veil he held up, a wisp of gossamer that was never spun by human distaff. Thank you for listening. Conan and Friends is an In Shambles production. 